So our reading is from uh, Romans chapter 9, uh, verse 19, down to 29. Romans nine nineteen. So verse 18 says, So then, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make... Out of the same lump, one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but from also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Lord, your words penetrates into our souls and we pray that this indeed would be the case as we study this passage which causes us many difficulties. The Lord help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we notice that this letter that Paul has written to the Romans may, you may have thought would, has taken a, a kind of strange unexpected turn at the beginning of chapter 9. You know, in chapter 8, we were enjoying those wonderful assurances that uh, the gospel brings us and uh, great, a great eschatological vision of, of the, the sons of God being revealed and uh, creation rejoicing uh, in all that God has done through Christ and uh, recognizing that because that's true, therefore nothing will separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Um, uh, all of that is wonderfully true, that we enjoy the, enjoy the fact that no matter what happens to us in this life, nothing shall separate us from, from his love. But in chapter 9, the, the mood does change somewhat, because as well as glorifying in, in the great facts of the gospel... He also uh, concurrently feels a great sense of sorrow uh, for his uh, an anguish of heart uh, because of the unbelief of his fellow Jews. Uh, and so, as we look to verses 1 to 5, uh, we saw the pastoral heart of Paul that he feels deeply 
for those people, for his kinsmen, for his cousins. Um, and that he and the church have done all they can to explain the gospel to, to those people, and yet they still reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that Lord Jesus Christ whom Paul has come to love, whom Paul met on the Damascus Road. And it grieves him greatly that his cousins can't see it. And because of this, Paul has, has raised a question, actually a number of questions now uh, that we've been working our way through. The first is, has God's promise failed? And, which is implied in verse 6. Um, and the reason is that he has known that, that how the promises have been made to, to Israel in the Old Testament uh, and all the other ways in which the Lord has blessed the people of Israel and they've been so privileged how is it then that they seem to have rejected uh, the gospel that, of which those Old Testament scriptures speak uh, how is it they just seem to reject the Lord Jesus Christ and Paul is, is of the view you see that the gospel goes out into the world but it's, it's First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And so you see his strategy when he goes uh, in, the, in the book of Acts, when he goes from city to city, he goes first of all to the synagogues, to the place where the Jews meet. Because why? Because they, they open up the scriptures. And so Paul comes as someone who has understood the scriptures in, in, in a Christ-centric way. He sees Christ in the scriptures. And so as he opens the scriptures and he expounds the scriptures, he explains how these are about Jesus Christ, and yet the people don't seem to uh, accept it. And I have no doubt that you know, Paul, when he was a young convert, and in the early days of his life as a Christian, uh, Paul would have wrestled uh, with such a question that he's asking, now has the way of God, of God failed? He might have wrestled with that question, having come out of Judaism. Uh, because he's had his whole way turned upside down after meeting the risen Christ. And so now he's able to anticipate that objection, perhaps for these young Christians, especially ones from a Jewish background. And his answer to that question has, has the... Uh, has the, the purpose of God failed, as the word of God failed, the answer is, not all descended from Israel are Israel. And that what matters here is that God is working out his purposes through the children of promise whom God alone has chosen to save. And then he comes to the second question. Is there injustice on God's part? And behind that question is the idea that there might be uh, some people who, who deserve salvation who are not getting it. Uh, whether it's through their family or through good works or some other way of appearing worthy before God, they might seem that they're, they're worthy and yet they're not getting that salvation. And Paul answers that question by bringing our focus onto the question of the mercy of God. But the answer to that question is, think about the mercy of God. That God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. That actually what saves people is the fact, what condemns people is the fact that they are unrighteous and left in their sin. And God comes in mercy. And what an important 
promise that is. Because if we really want God's justice, then of course we'd all be lost. God would just look at the list of sins and he'd say, you're condemned. Strict justice. But God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he closes that discussion with a sobering statement uh, in verse 18. So, so then he has mercy on whom he, whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And that's where we left it last time. And it's this, it's this statement that leads directly into a new question in verse 19. Uh, Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul is recognizing, of course, uh, that these are uh, real questions that people are asking. But what we need to understand is that uh, sometimes questions that arise in our hearts uh, are not wholly innocent, are they? Uh, Questions usually come out of a set of presuppositions. I invite you to think about that. Why do people ask questions in a particular way? When you you watch the news or something and the interviewer is asking certain questions you think there's a, there's a presumption behind that question isn't there why, why is he or she asking that question and not these questions I find that all the time when I'm listening to the news but questions betray a, perhaps a, um, a, a set of presuppositions and some of those presuppositions are not always pure uh, when it comes to God uh, sometimes questions are asked out of ignorance. Uh, like the first question, has God, God's work failed? Has his word failed? Is, is God getting his, uh, uh, his modus operandi wrong? Did he mess up and he's trying to do it again some other way? Uh, some questions are asked out of a false sense of justice. Like, we, you know, we, don't we deserve Salvation. And here I think the third question comes out of an inflated sense of one's own importance before God. Because, I mean, just look at Paul's immediate answer. Verse 20, but who, here's the answer. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? It's pretty confrontational. He kind of pushes back quite hard on that question. Who do you think you are? I actually entitled this sermon, Who Do You Think You Are? We should all be asking that question. Who do we think we are before God? And, uh, you know, there are times when, when children are very young and, uh, and they're constantly asking their parents questions, aren't you? <laughs> and and there, there are sometimes there comes a stage when they're older, when the child is still asking questions, but now it comes with a bit of attitude. <laughs> Like, Mom, Dad, you don't really know what you're talking about, but I'm going to ask you that question anyway. And it can be a question, it can question the wisdom of the parents with something of a surly attitude. And the answer to that attitude has to be now, wait a minute, who do you think you are asking me like that? Sometimes that's the right answer to give to a child who's asking surly questions. And that's Paul's answer uh, to the people asking this, this question. 
Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And Paul's recognizing here, I think, that this question is not uh, innocent intellectual speculation, but in a way it's answering back to God, questioning God's ways, questioning his wisdom. But Paul answers this now in three uh, different ways. Um, I think essentially it's the same answer, but in three different ways. He, firstly, he gives an answer by way of illustration. Then he gives an answer through theology. Then he gives an answer through scripture. So firstly, the, the answer through an illustration. What he does is he points to an analogy. And he says, imagine a potter with some clay. Uh, and the potter sets about making, making pots with the clay. And uh, you know, some of the pots are for one thing, and some of the pots are for another thing. And it's up to the potter. Who, do, who, do, who decides which pots go where? And what kind of pot they're going to be? Uh, but just imagine, you know, the, the potter starts making the pot, and the pot begins to speak back to the, the potter. How strange would that be? And the pot says... Excuse me, I don't want to be a serving dish. I want to be something beautiful and ornamental. Well, it's ridiculous, (laughs) isn't it? It's a ridiculous idea. And that's the point. The point Paul is making here is that the distance between the potter and the clay is so great that it's got nothing to do with the clay. What? It is used for. The lump of clay is just a lump. Uh, So it's laughable that the clay should answer back. And that's the point that Paul's making here about people. The distance between God and us, and we've been looking at this on Sunday mornings, the distance between God and us is so infinitely great, greater than a potter in his pots, If that's true of a potter and his pots, how much more true is it of us talking back to God? How much more right does God have to do with uh, things as he sees fit according to his good pleasure and consistent with his divine character? He has perfect right to do as he pleases with what he's made. And how much less right do we have to answer back to God? And actually, this is not an, an illustration that's plucked out of the air by Paul, as though he's just visited his, you know, gone to Ikea or something, and, uh, and then wrote this letter. Actually, it's one that comes up in Isaiah. And uh, you might want, like to look with me at Isaiah, uh, you know, Isaiah 29. I should have put my finger in it. So, excuse me. And in verse 14, there's, a, there's an interesting word from the Lord through Isaiah to the people of Jerusalem. In verse 13, um, sorry, verse 13 I meant. And, uh, and the Lord said, because the people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me uh, is a commandment taught by men, um, 
And uh, jump down to verse 16. Uh, the complaint is that the people turn things upside down. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? Uh, that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him, who formed it? He has no understanding. You see, the point, the point of, of Israel's word here is that the people of Israel... Are, are drawing near with their mouth, but their hearts are far away. And actually, in their heart of hearts, they're complaining against God about his ways of doing things. And if you understand the circumstances of Isaiah at this time, they're facing great danger as a nation, uh, then maybe you can realize uh, that there's circumstances that might encourage the people to, to complain against God. But God comes back and he says, who do you think you are? complaining. You turn things upside down. Actually the point is, and the whole point of the judgment that is experienced in the early chapters of Isaiah is that God has an issue with his people and with all human beings. And and so presented there is the state of mankind in all his need. And the picture here is not of a poor, pitiful creature reaching out to God uh, to meet his needs and God saying no. Rather, it's the proud and arrogant creature who says to God, away with you, who do you think you are, God? Paul will not have this. So he stands his ground, back to Romans 9, and he, he makes no apology for God. Because God is God. You're clay, dust. It's very important as Christians, isn't it? But when we question God, we do so humbly. We don't come wagging the finger and trying to tell God how he should be. But rather we humble ourselves before his word. And we allow ourselves to be changed by his word so that we see him more clearly. We have this idea, I think, in the West that God is somehow merely a benevolent father figure, grandfather figure, perhaps, who if we talk to him sweetly enough, we can bend him round our little finger and we can get him to do anything that we want. And we can get him to say to us in our pride, that's okay, don't worry about your sins. And as it were, God is saying to us, sorry if I challenge you too much. Sorry I pointed out that sin. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We, make, we think we can bend God around our little finger. Paul will have none of that. Because God will have none of it. If we want salvation, it must be on God's terms and his alone. And that involves us having our pride flattened as we see the extent and the depth of our sin and our offense as mere creatures and fleeing to Jesus Christ with nothing in our hands, pleading to be saved. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God, says Paul. Well, that's one answer from analogy. Here's another analogy, uh, another answer from theology this time. Having stood his ground and dealt with the person who answers back to God, 
Paul pursues the idea of vessels or pots made by the potter a bit further. Some are made for honourable use, some are for dishonourable use. And now he calls them vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath in verses 22 and 23. And in talking about them, he goes back to something that he talked about in verse 17. The, the display of the power and glory of this great God. Remember, he's already said, who are you, O man? He has put mankind in his right place where we're not to answer back. And then he asked the question. He asked the question, what if, verse, 20, uh, verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath in preparation for destruction? And in verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. In a sense, it's a rhetorical question, what if? Because God is in the business of making his power and his glory known to creation. How does he do it? Well, it's interesting to me, at least, that uh, one of the things tied into the display of his power uh, is the patience of God with the, the vessels of wrath. Don't forget the patience of God. It's notable that, that Paul says that in order for his people to experience it, God, his power and glory, God has waited patiently. An example of that is, is Pharaoh. Uh, and we've touched on Pharaoh already uh, in this, this chapter, in the ten plagues or in the Exodus. Why did God endure so long with Pharaoh? Why did he go, go to the extent of ten plagues? Why not just one or none even? God's spoken. Why, why wouldn't he just act if he didn't obey? Well, God gave the reason in Exodus chapter 7 through the hardening, it was through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart that God would multiply signs so that after ten plagues, the people of Egypt would be in no doubt who is God. It's one of the great themes of Exodus, is that God is a God who will be known both by his people and by those who are not his people. That's one reason why so much of the book is given over to the tabernacle. Because that's the place where the people can meet with God. Because God wants to be known. Now holding that thought about God's patience. uh, Think now about Paul's present time. What's happening? The Gentiles are now believing. And Israel on the whole is not believing. The hearts of the Gentiles are being softened. But it seems that the hearts of Israel are being hardened to the gospel. Now, this is an amazing thing to me. Do you remember back to the arguments that Paul made in chapters 1 and 2? How he was was showing in in chapter 1 that the world was full of godlessness and unrighteousness. And you can imagine that the Jews in the congregation are are thinking about this and saying, Yes, of course, they're Gentiles. Of course they're going to be hardened against God. There's going to be godlessness and unrighteousness. And then Paul moves on to to chapter 2. 
To show how even the self-righteous Jew has no true righteousness either. And in so doing, he knocks the pride out from under them. So they they collapse in a heap. And actually what's going on here is God is, is doing something through the gospel. And he's doing it through the proclamation of the gospel around the world. That on the one hand, he is hardening hearts. In this case, many Jews. And on the other, displaying the glory of God to those whose hearts are being softened. This is an interesting thing about the gospel, isn't it? The gospel is used to call people. And there are those who hear it and receive it with great joy. And every time they hear it, they see a little bit more of the glory and the power of God. And they give glory to God in their lives. And they see the wonderful mercy of God. But it would be a mistake to think that that's all that happens with gospel proclamation. Because the gospel also hardens people. People, have you ever found this? That people who sit under the ministry of the word for any length of time, there are some people who just seem to get harder and harder. More resistant. It's almost like they're inoculated against the gospel. They've had a little bit of the truth, enough to harden their hearts against it. This is what sometimes happens with the gospel. That's what was behind Jesus' use of parables. Some he would harden and and some hearts would be softened through the parables as they gained understanding. So this is an answer from theology. That there is a hardening going on and there is a softening going on. And some are destined for wrath and some are destined for heavenly glory. But here's his third, Paul's third answer. And it is an answer from Scripture. And um, he references Hosea in verse 25 and 26. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people I will call my people. And her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And there, Paul is showing that the purpose of God has always involved the whole world, not just Israel. And then he quotes from Isaiah as well, verse, 20, uh, verse 27. Uh, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Showing that God had always had in mind that not all ethnic Israel would be saved, but only a remnant. And this simply shows us, as we come to a close, that while we may be baffled about who should be saved and who should not, who deserves salvation and who does not salvation, deserve salvation, it is never baffling to God. God knows exactly what he's doing. And his word has not failed. Friends, Paul has stood his ground in this chapter and presented God as God, not as some pet to our beck and call. And in doing that, he challenges our pride. But actually, that's the best thing for us. We'd be humbled before God.
Because scripture testifies to us time and time again that when we humble ourselves before his awesome glory, we find ourselves in a place of grace and mercy and lifted up. We see the greatness of the gospel and we see the greatness of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the forthrightness with which Paul answers these questions. And we pray that uh, though we, may ha- we too may have questions in our minds, things to be resolved, we pray you'd help us to come at them with a humble heart. And not waving our fists at God, as it were. Not questioning the Bible and its veracity. But rather seeking to understand it. And Lord, you're only too willing to help us with our genuineness, genuine understanding, but you are not willing to pander to our intellectual pride. So hear our prayers. Help us to see the glory of the gospel, the glory of our God. In Jesus' name, amen.